Well, we're getting uh, close to that season, right? That season where, where some of us are excited about, but maybe some dread. And that's the season of holidays when extended family come to town. Anybody, ex- the room got real quiet with that. Is everybody excited about that, you know? So, so it's really funny because when we think about that, um, I think about my family. It's my family. I mean, we all have, you know, challenges in our family. So don't, don't anybody leave here going like, wow, everybody's, somebody's got a perfect family but me. No, we all have challenges in our families. And, um, you know, at least my family has normal names. You know, like I'm Bob, my dad's Bob, and I've got brothers. They've got normal names. Now, Patty's family, on the other hand, uh, they're a little bit different with names. You know, Patty's family came from the, the hills of uh, North Georgia, the mountains of North Georgia. And she's got, you know, relatives like named like Hoss and Duck, okay? Now, I think they're musicians, but I've always thought they were moonshiners, but I, I wasn't real sure about that. But anyway, so, so family gathering at the table is always that big thing. Now, what are two things that we try not to do or you shouldn't do when you gather at the dinner table with extended family? What are two things you shouldn't talk about? Politics, Politics and what? Religion. Reli- hey, A plus. You guys get an A plus today. Politics and religion. Yeah. So what we find out is um, politics, let's start with that one. Politics can actually divide a family. In fact, it probably does divide families. You know, depending upon your family, you've got one that likes Trump, one that loves Biden. You've got another one that, <clears throat> that says that we should let uh, anybody into our country because we're, we're full of um, immigrants. We've got another one that says keep everybody out. We've got people that say, hey, I'm a Democrat. People say I'm a Republican or Independent. But when all that starts happening, uh, the challenges come when we start seeing the differences at our table and in those conversations. In fact, some of those conversations get so heated that some of our own family will get up from the table and leave. Have you ever had that happen? And, and even there's fractures and fissures in families that, that happen because of politics. Now, now, that's just politics, okay? Now, let's bring religion in for a second. So we're talking about politics at the dinner table, now religion. Now, I love Jimmy Buffett. Anybody else love Jimmy Buffett? Everybody knows who Jimmy Buffett is, right? Okay. Jimmy Buffett's a great theologian. Did you know that? He is. He's a great theologian. His song, Fruitcake, he sums it up. He says, here is the church, here is the steeple. Religion's in the hands of some crazy people, okay? You can fill in the blank. But, but that's what happens. Is so we start talking about religion, and we start talking about politics, and all of the problems that, that come with that. There was a guy who was stranded on a desert island for 20 years. For 20 years, no one knew that he was there. And just by chance, a small expedition landed on his island to do some work. And there he was. And they're like, you've been gone for 20 years? He's like, yeah. They said, how'd you survive? He said, come follow me. Let me show you. And he takes them inside to the middle of the mountain. He pulls back a bunch of palms, and there's three thatch huts right there in the middle of the island. And they're looking at him, and they're going like, what's this? And he said, well, the first one's where I live. And they said, yeah, but you're alone. What are the other two? He said, well, the one on the end, that third one, that's my church. And the one in the middle, that's the church I used to attend. So, so that's kind of what happens with religion, right? That's what happens with religion, and that's what happens with politics. 
Well, we're in week four of this series where we're talking about uh, finding faith. We're asking these tough questions. And these are questions that, that many of you and I and all of us that we're constantly ruminating with. And, and we've talked about what is faith. We've talked about, you know, what is an atheist? And last week we talked about if I've got questions and how do I reach people um, that may be agnostic or maybe who don't believe that there's an answer to anything and just aren't really sure. And today we're going to talk about if, if there's one God, why are there so many denominations? Now, I already told my son-in-law, I said, now this will probably be the longest sermon I've ever preached, so just buckle in. I'm going to get through it real fast. There's actually a lot of information, uh, but I've cut it way down, so just stick with me, and I'll get you out of here by at least 3 o'clock, okay? <laughs> Is that a good thing? No, really. We'll get, we'll get out of here on time. Trust me, we'll be okay with that. So, so let's kind of just let's look at this. So our faith began with Judaism. You know, God took Israel and he said, I'm going to reveal myself. I'm going to make this a, a credible people. And out of this, the people of Israel through Jerusalem are going to become um, my witnesses. And we saw that um, things began to, to morph around. And, and then God said, I'm going to do something a little bit better than that now. I'm going to come to earth. So, so we believe in our faith that Jesus, who we read about in the Bible, that Jesus is not just some person who had great faith or some priest or whatever, we believe Jesus is God with skin on. We believe in what's called the incarnation, that God came in the flesh, walked the earth as Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes, he begins to teach, he begins to preach, he begins to heal, he begins to focus to help people understand that the kingdom of God is not something in the future to look forward to, but the kingdom of God is now. And he calls upon the people to immediately live their life today in the very moment as if you're living in the kingdom of God at this very moment. Well, there's a bunch of people that didn't like that message. They arrested Jesus. They had him killed. He was crucified on a cross. He was um, raised from the dead in three days. And before he went to heaven, um, he actually uh, wandered around and, and saw friends and visited people for 40 days. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 6, he writes and he says that, that in all of this, that Jesus appeared to more than 500 eyewitnesses. Five, more than 500 people physically said, I saw Jesus. So before Jesus went to heaven, he made a proclamation. We call it the Great Commission. And here's what he said. It's in Matthew's Gospel. He said, God authorized and commanded me to commission you. That's the first thing we've got to understand. That faith is not just a God thing alone, but that you and I are invited partners. We are invited into the story of faith, and God calls us to do something with that. So Jesus says that, that he's been authorized and commanded to commission you and me. And he says, go out and train everyone that you meet. Notice he doesn't say, just train people you like. Just train people that are like you. Just train people that believe like you. He says, train everyone that you meet far and near in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to this. He says, then instruct them in the practice of all that I've commanded you. So he's basically saying, tell them what I'm telling you, that in my words and the things that I'm saying is the credible story of faith. And we later learn it's the scriptures that are illuminated in both the Old and the New Testament. He says, I'll be with you as you do this. Folks, that should let us know right there that all the fears and everything that we have about sharing our faith, well, they might reject me, they won't like me, they'll think I'm weird. Jesus says, I'm going to be with you. And what a better partner, there is no better partner to have with us in that 
than Christ himself. And he says, and I'll be with you up until the very end. So it's pretty simple, right? Jesus says, here's what you do. Tell people what I'm telling you. Share the faith. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do everything that I've commanded you, and don't be secretive about it. But let the world know who I am. Now, a lot of us, will look at the book of Acts. So Acts follows the Gospels, and, and Acts is written by Luke. And, and Acts is the, the Acts of the Apostles is what it's called. It is uh, a historical rendition, interviews and recollection by, by Luke, on how the first church began, how the early church began. So we find in Acts chapter 2, we find the assimilation in the birth of the church. And a lot of us who are in uh, churchdom work, we'll look at that and we'll say, that's the kind of church I want to be. Because it says that, that they helped each other, that nobody had a need that wasn't met, that they all got along, that they were in one accord. They drove Hondas, okay? Uh, they were in one accord, okay? And, uh, okay, that gets better. Just, just hang with me. And, and, so, and so that's the kind of church we want to be. But you know what? They had a problem. You know what the problem was? They had this huge falling out. They had this huge argument. And the argument was who was or was not allowed to be called Christian, who was or wasn't allowed to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And they have this huge argument. And in circumcision and non-circumcision, pagan and believer, could they be a Jew? Could they not be a Jew? Were they just supposed to be Christian? I mean, all of this. And finally, James, the half-brother of Jesus, settles it. And he says, basically, my brother made sure that, as Lord, all are part of the church. So we see that even the Acts 2 church had some, some great challenges. And it was out of those kinds of things, and it was out of those stretchings throughout the 1st and 2nd and 3rd century that we began to see a lot of changes in the church. Well, Martin Luther, who was a, um, a Catholic monk, Martin Luther lived, I think, in the, in the 5th century or 4th century. Luther got to a point where, where he, was, he was tired or gaining becoming tired of what was called the selling of indulgences by the Catholic church. So Rome now became the, the place of Catholicism, of Christianity, and they needed money to build St. Peter's Basilica. So the priests were ordered to go get parishioners to give money, but, but don't just ask them to do it. Tell them that, that their loved ones won't have to stay in purgatory as long. If they give money, that you'll let them get through purgatory faster. Tell them that they'll get more favor from God if they get money. These were called indulgences. If you give us money... We will indulge you with a blessing. We will indulge you with something else. And Luther said the church has lost sight of what its purpose and mission is. And so basically, he wrote 95 grievances against the Roman Catholic Church during that season. And he said this is how the church has lost its way. And he had them nailed to the abbey wall. And that's what began the Protestant Reformation. That's how the church became reformed. And out of that, we began to see lots of things coming to fruition. Luther began the first movement, and then all of a sudden there started to be disagreements about how we feel about this, that, and the other, and denominations began to have birth. So let me kind of walk us through uh, very quickly um, how denominationalism happened in the life of the church. The first, time, first thing that we know is over church governance. Church governance or, or is, is a place that creates denominations. And that basically boils down to who is the person or persons who has the authority to say what Scripture is in interpretation, oversight of the sacraments or the ordinances, and who can order the life of the church as far as its mission. 
And the first group took a Catholic stance and said that that person is called a bishop. And that is a, a pastor, an ordained pastor, who oversees many other churches and many other pastors. And that bishop is the one who is the ecclesial authority that makes that happen. Another group of Protestants said, wait a minute. Uh, we think it's really the elders of the church who have that authority. And they went back to a biblical term, a Greek term, uh, presbyteros. And that's Presbyterian. And that means somebody who has the authority as a layperson or maybe ordained to oversee the, the life of the church. And that's where we get Presbyterians. And the Presbyterian church comes out of that. The third group said, no, no, no. This really resides in the people totally. There's no ecclesial leader. There's really no elders that are uh, ordained in a sense by a larger church. But, but it's really kind of like all the people have some kind of authority, but one will rise up that we will ordain within our own, and that will be our leader. And that's where our friends the Baptists and a lot of non-denominational independents come from, is they come from that particular order. So church government was one of those pieces. Another way or another area in which we saw the development of denominationalism is over the question, who and at what time is a person to be baptized? Now, a lot of mainline denominations kind of fall in line with the Catholics on this. And we believe that, that all people are to be baptized. And we even believe that children should. So the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, the Episcopalians, these are all going to follow a Catholic movement because they believe that the interpretation of the Bible says that Families were being baptized. We see that in Scripture. And Jesus' own affinity to children, when he says, do not hinder them, for to let them come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Another group said, no, uh, infant baptism isn't substantiated in the Scriptures. And it really is more of a believer's baptism. One has to profess their faith. And only if they profess their faith can they be baptized. So that first group that said it was like uh, it could be infants and all, that's a group that says that baptism is what's called a sacrament. And a sacrament is something where God is acting. It's not human done. It's God who is acting. So those faith traditions that I told you about, Methodist, Episcopalian, Anglican, Presbyterian, and Lutheran, they would say one baptism. And they base that upon Paul's words that there's one faith, one church, one baptism. And they would say because it's God who is acting to baptize someone a second or third time, those faith traditions would say that's saying God made a mistake because God has to redo what God already did. The other faith traditions see it as an entryway into the life of the local church. You profess your faith, you join up with the local church, and therefore you will be baptized as part of that body of faith. And that's why some of our friends who, who are maybe independents or congregationalists or Baptists or Pentecostals, they'll say, you know, I got dunked here, I got dunked there, and I baptized here, baptized there, because that's what they believe. It's an ordinance. It's a rite of profession of faith in the life of the local church. The third piece that we find that caused denominationalism is over the sovereignty of God. Now, what's the sovereignty of God? The sovereignty of God means what is God capable of? 
What can God do? What does God have the authority to do, the power to do, and the presence to do? So the sovereignty of God is, is a big piece with this. This is where the Presbyterians and other Reformed denominations like the Baptists and the Independents and the non-denominationals and the Congregationalist churches, they will pull into a systematic belief that's going to be different on the sovereignty of God than the Methodists, the Episcopalians, um, the um, uh, Anglicans, and, and also the Lutherans. So this group focuses on the sovereignty of God in a way that they believe that nothing in the world happens apart from God being the one who makes it happen. This is the sovereignty of God, okay? So this is a theological position. So basically what this means is everything that happens in the world, God has made that happen. God has done that. A child gets sick, God made the child sick. A hurricane comes, God created the hurricane that wipes out people. An earthquake happens. God created the earthquake that kills people. Um, you know, devastation, those things. So everything in life is preordained or everything in life is at the hands of God. So God is the one who is responsible for everything that happens. Now, what they'll believe with is that humans can still rob banks and uh, have accidents and cars and all that, but that God has foreknown and God has predetermined that those things would happen in that person's life. That's going to differ a lot from the non-reformed folks who believe something differently than that. So, so the view of sovereignty says that no matter how awful things may be, God is at work, and our lives are not subject to choice or chance. So uh, our faith tradition, which would be Methodist and Episcopalian, Anglican, um, and, and the others, we would believe in something called free will. We believe God is sovereign. We believe God is all-powerful. God can do whatever God chooses to do. But one of the things that God chooses to, we believe, is that God chooses to give us the ability to choose. Now, let me, let me parse it this way. Let's say that you have a child or you've had children or maybe you have grandchildren. Does it not mean more when the children choose to love you rather than you forcing them to love you? You see the difference that's there. So, so we believe in the choice. So, so we believe that, that God wants us to have a good life. God wants us to be holy. God doesn't want, to make us, want us to make wrong or bad decisions, but that God gives us the freedom, the freedom to make those choices. And it grieves God's heart when we in our humanity commit acts or when we do things that, that we would interpret as being against the will of God. So thinking this through, this, this doctrine leads to some serious questions. I mean, think of the pandemic, you know, did God create that? And, and, and at the time of creation, did God know that the pandemic, and God said on that specific January of 2019 that this pandemic would kill hundreds of thousands of people? I mean, these are the questions that come. Are earthquakes a part of that? Did God wire the world? Did God set the tectonic plates in the middle of the core of the earth to break up on that particular day so that these earthquakes would come? So unlike the Presbyterians and Baptists, the Catholics, Methodists, Episcopalians, Anglicans, and Lutherans, we believe that God is sovereign, but that God has not preordained those things. We believe free will comes in. And we believe that that is not something, that free will does not take away the sovereignty of God, because God can always choose to override our free will, if God so chooses to do that. So here's the next one, predestination and election. <clears throat> this is something that was brought about um, and, and caused denominationalism as well. This was actually a part of John Calvin's theology. Calvin was a lawyer. 
Um, he also founded the Presbyterian Church. And Calvin um, had some specific portions of his theology. He issued an understanding on, on um, basically that God has pre-chosen who will be saved and pre-chosen who will go to hell. So Calvin said that salvation was not for all, but that God had already chosen at the time of creation this number of people and those individuals would go to heaven, this number of people and those people would go to hell, and that we would live our lives literally not knowing which we were, but we were called to live our life as if we were the elect or we were the chosen. And Calvin put some great emphasis on this, and he basically said that it had nothing to do with the person's faith, it had nothing to do with the person's um, love of God, but that God had pre-chosen, God had elected those persons to have salvation. Calvin also believed that Christ's death had nothing to do with the salvation of the many, but only the salvation for the elect or the chosen. So the challenges that we see, if, if you're not a Reformed thinker, the challenges that we would have with that is, what does that say then of John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. So we see some challenges in the differences of the theologies, of the basis of the denominations, of, of the way that things have spun off. Here's another one, role of women in the life of the church. All right, there are some denominations that, that, that do not allow women to hold an ordained office. Women are not allowed to teach in the church. Women are not allowed to be leaders in the church. Women are just supposed to come alongside and be quiet in some instances. Others, they're allowed to do some things, but, but the males are the ones who are chosen to be the leaders. So in the Methodist church, the Episcopal church, the um, uh, Presbyterian church, the um, Lutheran church, you're going to see that women are given roles of authority. And, and in some Baptist churches that happen, but predominantly in most Baptist churches and non-denoms and, and um, independent churches, that authority and the Catholic Church, that authority resides solely in a male. But we see, as the United Methodists, that women are part of the ministry of God, and we justify that through the Scriptures. If you look at the stories of the significant role that women play in the Old and New Testaments, in the restoration and the salvific plan of God in reconciling the world, women play a predominant role with that. So let me just shift gears for a second. Let me, let me talk to you now about, instead of the differences, let me share with you why I choose uh, to be a United Methodist. Now, um, what I've shared with you is in no way meant to be this is better than that and this isn't as good and they don't think right. No, I'm just merely sharing with you the tenets of, of all of these. And I am not here to convince you if you're not a United Methodist to become a United Methodist. But I do want to share with you um, why I choose to be because I think it's important um, to, to go through that. Uh, as Methodists, we're, we're shaped by John Wesley. John Wesley was an Anglican priest who lived in the 18th century. And Wesley had on his heart that he wanted to be more than a nominal Christian. He wanted to be a true believer. So Wesley um, went on this pilgrimage of holiness. He wanted to find a way to be holy as, as God is holy. He was also uh, living during the time of enlightenment and the time of pietism. So that quietness of listening, enlightenment, the way of thinking. So Wesley realized in his life of spiritual development, he had to hold both the enlightenment, the thinking portion, and the pietist portion of listening to the Holy Spirit. He had to hold those 
into subsequent equal values in order to understand God's will for his life. So, so this brought in what we call reason. And reason was one of those things that Wesley believed uh, was instrumental to the people called Methodists. Because Wesley said that we are called to use our mind. We're not just supposed to believe something because someone told us that. But Wesley said when we become Christian, when we become believers, when we submit ourselves to Jesus, that we get to a point where, where our mind, our reason, our reason tells us that this is truth and here is why. In fact, uh, Wesley said that, that it's not just a cerebral faith that we're supposed to have, but it's, it's of the head and of the heart. That, that our understanding of what Christ's role is in our life should motivate our heart to do something. And Wesley said that was pivotal. So as Methodists, we're, we're called to live under three general rules. Here they are. The first one is avoid doing what you know is wrong. Another way to say that is do no harm. So don't harm anybody. Live your life every day to where you do no harm to someone else. Number two, do all the good that you can to everyone that you can. And what that means is, is don't pick and choose who to be uh, charitable to. Charity means love, okay? Don't pick and choose who you're going to love. Don't pick and choose who you're going to um, mentor, who you're going to nurture. In fact, Jesus says that, that it's, it's nothing to nurture or mentor someone who's just like us or someone that we love or like, but it really moves the heart in a Christ way when we reach out to the person that we don't know. Here's the third one. Pursue the scriptural disciplines, including prayer and worship, reading of scripture, fasting, and the celebration of the sacraments. So Wesley said that, that a Methodist needs to live their life daily, reading the scriptures, pursuing that, getting into the word of God, prayer, asking God to motivate the heart, not asking Jesus for something in return, but giving their heart to Christ. So as United Methodists, we, we also accept as the foundation of our faith what we see as the words of the Nicene and or the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed was the very first creed that was written, and the Apostles' Creed is what a lot of our churches proclaim today. We do that mostly at our 9 o'clock service. And in that is the tenets of all of the faith in which we believe. We're also ecumenical. Um, we don't make it a habit to say that these churches are wrong, those beliefs are wrong, they don't know what they're doing. We work to work with other churches. We love to work with other denominations because we believe that together we're able to accomplish the kingdom's purpose and that we're all in this together. In fact, Wesley wrote in his sermon, The Catholic Spirit, he said, although a difference in opinions or modes of worship may prevent an entire external union, yet need it prevent our union in affection. So the fact that there are some things going on that prevent us from being together, does that really need to make it to where we can't be friendly toward each other? He says, though we can't think alike, may we not love alike. So we may not think the same things in doctrine, like women in ministry or things like that, but can we not love each other as Christ would call us to love? May we not, may we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion. Without all doubt, we may. Herein, all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. So Wesley said that the goal is, despite the differences that we have and the little idiosyncrasies of the things that we believe, sacraments or ordinances or doctrines at all, we need to find what he would call a Catholic spirit, not Roman Catholic church, Catholic as in all churches. Find a Catholic spirit 
to where we work together for the good of God. So, so drawing on this, um, Wesley moved into that pietist movement, and Methodists place a major emphasis on personal faith. It's important for all of us, uh, Wesley would say, to work out our salvation daily, that we are called not to just believe what somebody else tells us, but that we are to pursue our own sense of holiness as well as together. In fact, Wesley would say, don't check your brain at the door before you come to church. Use your mind in the midst of that. We stand against the teaching of predestination. This is probably the, the largest one for 300 plus years that have been the differences between Methodists and folks that um, are into Reformed theology. So we argue that God has not predestined some to heaven and some to hell. Uh, we insist that God's grace is available to all people and that God's grace is working in and through all of us and that we as individuals are free to accept that gift in whatever forms God presents it to us and there's an emphasis on free will. Now we understand that, that God knows all things and God can interpret who will in the end accept him or not, but we don't believe that God has pre-chosen who will be accepted and who won't. We also place a major emphasis on two seemingly um, contradictory ideas, grace and holiness. We recognize that, that, that we are uh, in need of God's grace, undesired, uh, unworked merit of God. We can't earn it, but God's love comes to us freely. So we're constantly balancing holiness and grace, and we recognize when we fall short, when we miss the mark, when we sin, that God's grace is sufficient to woo us back onto the path of holiness. We would ascribe to the words of the psalmist, merciful and gracious, that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And at the same time, we know that, that, that God has saved us from our sin for good works. Because when we call that sanctification, that whenever I have received Christ in my life, that what is my agenda is no longer to be me, but to be the heart and the hands and the heart and the arms and the legs and the feet of Jesus in the world. Here's another one. Um, a thing that, um, a devotion to self and the goal of changing lives. So we see um, to be a Methodist is a devotion to self and changing lives. What it means is that it can't just be about you but that we devote ourselves to the pursuit of holiness, but the goal is we are looking to change another life. We would be um, Luke 15 people, looking for that one that's still lost. To have a secured faith, but also to know that it doesn't just stop with me, that once I accept Christ, it's not over, but that I then share that faith with someone else. And uh, lastly, revitalizing the church. This is one of the reasons why I choose to be a United Methodist pastor because I truly believe that God wants the church revitalized. Now, God's grace is so powerful, it's a gift, and it's given to everyone, but it has to begin with the people um, who are part of the church. Now, let me get real with you for a second. A lot of us struggle with this. We go to a church because we like a pastor, we like a, a music, we like a building, we like whatever. But the question becomes, what are we doing with this passion that is in us, that when we become believers, the Holy Spirit comes upon us, that we are changed to become something new. So how do we move out of being apathetic 
or um, in, as Revelation would say, lukewarm about our faith? And how do we come to become a person who's willing to not only live out our faith, but to be excited about it? So part of revitalizing the church is, is that we see the significance of why it's important to share the faith, why it's important to be part of corporate worship, why it's important to engage our community in works of love and service, why it's important to share the story of salvation. It begins with us. And if we who are in the church aren't excited about that, how is the world going to be excited about it? It starts with us. And therefore, we need to be ignited and understand and, and just be willing to just knock it out of the park to say that this story of faith is so credible, so outstanding, and such a gift from God, you all need it. It's almost like we're saying it's a disease, and we need to give somebody the virus. And that's the faith, and that's the part. So revitalization starts with you and me. It starts with us looking at ourselves and asking the important question, are we ready to step forward and be excited about the faith that we confess? Wesley was an Anglican priest. He went for years kind of just sludging through, trudging through just what it meant to be a priest. He administered the sacraments. He preached sermons. And one day he found himself in a Bible study at a place off of Aldersgate in, in London. And they were looking at Martin Luther, the great reformer's notes on the book of Romans chapter 3. And Wesley said at that moment something significantly happened to him. Listen to what Romans 3 says. But in our time something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years um, has come. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. So Paul is saying, quit thinking about it. It's happened. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. So Paul is saying it's not just that select group um, that, that experienced that, but it's for all people. He said, for there's no difference between us and them in this meaning believer and non-believer light, since we've compiled this long and sorry record of sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God's wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess that we're in, and he restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by a means of Jesus Christ, meaning God chose to save all, and God made that particular proclamation. Wesley heard that, and Wesley said at that moment right there, something happened to him. Some would say a spiritual experience. Others would say maybe then he was born again. Others would say it was an illumination of something that he knew in his head but never applied in his heart. Wesley said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And that's the message here. Whether you're a Baptist or whether you're a Methodist, whether you're an Episcopalian, a Catholic, a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, whatever you are, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for your sins. He has died for us that we might have life. And that's the peace that we hold together. We might think differently on other things, but we can claim that one thing, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died 
for our sins. That's the belief we must take forward. That's the belief in Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, you might have some more questions about this. Whether you're at home or whether you're here, let me invite you uh, to reach out to me, bob.m at stpaulumc.org. I'd be happy to have a conversation with you. Um, after worship today, you can go to the green uh, connection tent, and Devin will be there, and, and she'll be happy to answer some questions for you as well, uh, just to make sure that we're getting you guys connected in some way. Some of you might feel like, hey, listen, I've been attending St. Paul a long time. I'm ready to be a part of this community of faith. Let me know that so that I can walk with you and we can make that happen. Some of us here today, we're kind of at that precipice of, hey, I'm ready to revitalize the church, capital C. I'm ready to get excited again about what I believe. I'm ready to knock it out of the park for Jesus, and it begins with me. If that's who you are, let me know so that we can spur that forward in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. God, we know you love us. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all things. And we know that we know that we know. Jesus, we know that you love us. But today, let us say to you, Jesus, we love you. In your name, amen.